The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that there is neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that at the cro- on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. At the instant of our salvation, the slate is wiped clean. We have eternal life. We are forgiven of all pre-salvation sins. After salvation, we still sin. We still break fellowship with God, though we can never lose our salvation. God has provided the means of cleansing so and restoration to fellowship through the grace principle in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess, which means to admit or to acknowledge our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we begin our time of studying His Word, we take a few moments to uh, make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the Word of God in right relationship with the Holy Spirit so that he can use that which we study to produce spiritual growth in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in your word that over the course of over 2,000 years you revealed yourself and that revelation was written down and preserved, kept. You watched over it providentially, preserved the text so that we could have your word, your instruction directed to us. Not only that, but in this age you have provided us with God the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every believer And it is part of his ministry in our lives to make your word perspicuous to us, that we might understand it, that we might be able to apply these things in our life. And then he takes that and he produces spiritual growth from the seed of your word, which is implanted in our souls, as James tells us. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that we might be able to concentrate on what you have to say to us, that we might focus our attention on the details of the text and that we might be uh, driven to a greater obedience toward you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
We continue our study in Revelation this morning, and we're in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is the introduction to the seventh letter of these seven ecclesiastical evaluation reports that we find at the beginning of the book of Revelation. These three, I mean these seven uh, evaluation reports that we have in chapters 2 and chapter 3 are designed to give an overview of the trends that take place during the church age, the strengths and weaknesses that will occur in various congregations down through the so far 2,000 years of church history. This is that part of uh, the book of Revelation which is indicated by the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse uh, 19, when he commissioned the Apostle John to write the things which you have seen, past tense, that's chapter 1, the things which are present tense, that is what is taking place during this present church age, and the things which will take place after this, that is the future events that come after the conclusion of the present church age. Those events begin in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter uh, 21 or 22 all deal with the future events of that take place during the tribulation and the events that come after that. So we read in verse 14 the salutation to the church of the Laodiceans. Now last time we spent our time looking at the background to the church at Laodicea. And we saw, first of all, that the term angel refers to a literal angel who is seen within the context of the angelic ministries of the book of Revelation to be sort of a heavenly court reporter, uh, somewhat a blend of what we would call today a court reporter and a federal marshal, that these angels are involved in the distribution of judgment, God's justice in human history throughout the book of Revelation. They hold that same kind of position in uh, in the church age. They are record keepers of the, the uh, individual congregations during the church age, and they keep accounts of how God's justice is worked out with regard to these congregations. Each of these letters have to do with their strengths and failures. These aren't letters like the letters you have in uh, the rest of the New Testament, the epistle to the Ephesians or the Galatians or Colossians or Corinthians, which deal with church age doctrine, spiritual life doctrine, uh, revealing who and what God is. These are evaluation reports, and so it is these angels who keep track of the evaluation it's outworking in the lives of these congregations. So this is our seventh church, the church of the Laodiceans. And we studied this last time in terms of the location, that Laodicea was located about 40 miles to the southeast of Philadelphia up here, which was the sixth letter, which we just studied. And it's a little south of due east of Ephesus. Ephesus is over here on the coast, and that's about 100 miles to Laodicea. It was six miles 
south of Hierapolis, and it was approximately 10 miles uh, to the west of Colossae. I have a couple of other maps to show you. Here's a uh, broader map. Uh, Jack found a couple of maps out on the Internet, uh, sent me a location the other day so to give us a little uh, broader perspective of where these uh, churches were located. This area is the modern country of Turkey. To the north is the Black Sea. To the west, the Aegean, and down to the south, the Mediterranean. Um, these churches here in the central southern area, many of the churches that Paul founded on his first missionary journey. Then these churches that we have uh, indicated by these red dots, with the exception of Miletus here, are the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. These are all within what was called the Roman province of Asia. Uh, we think of Asia as much further to the east, but this was the uh, Roman province of Asia, and Turkey was often referred to as Asia Minor. It is here at the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles up here in this uh, split between the Aegean and the Black Sea is the boundary between Europe to the northwest, and this is considered the Asian continent to the southeast. This is a close-up view of the location of Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae in their positions relative to one another uh, in terms of the modern uh, layout. These are where those uh, locations are in relation to a modern city of Denizli in, in Turkey. We noted last time that there were some important uh, aspects to understanding what was going on in Laodicea just in terms of their location, their geography, because this plays an important role in the backdrop to understanding the uh, various allusions and comments in this evaluation report. The city was, first of all, tremendously wealthy. It had in its, uh, it was near various gold mines, and so it had become a banking center. Uh, gold was refined in this area, and so it became a major center for financial trade, and it was a major mercantile center. It was located on the crossroads of a major east-west trade route and a north-to-south trade route. The city was almost wiped out twice, I noted last time, in AD 17 and again in AD 61 through an earthquake, and they were so wealthy that with, they were exceptional in that they refused any federal aid, imperial aid, let's say, from the Roman government. They were going to rebuild their city based on their own uh, financial strength, which they did. That revealed an attitude of uh, independence, an attitude of self-sufficiency, and of course the, any positive attitude of self-sufficiency can also have certain uh, negative side if you're too independent and too self-sufficient, and that seemed to display itself in their spiritual life and their relationship uh, to the Lord. The area was also noted for wool production. See, I think I have that picture out of order, but uh, I'll go forward to that. Noted for wool production, and we have, there we have, the black sheep. 
They had a unique sort of black wool that was produced in the area, and they wove it in uh, seamless garments, which were prized possessions throughout the Roman Empire. This would be the uh, Hermes scarf of the ancient world, or it would be uh, the designer clothing of the ancient world, and only the wealthiest could possess uh, wool garments from uh, Laodicea. And this stands in contrast to what the, the Lord's emphasis that those who uh, follow him would be clothed in white garments in verse 18. So there's a, a contrast there. These, um, the third thing I had noted in the passage or in the background was that Laodicea was also a medical center had a medical school there dedicated to the Greek god Asclepius, and that was also connected to the temple, the pagan temple, to an older um, an older god worshipped in the area named Menkaru, and it was there that they developed a particular powder that was called Phrygian powder and was used uh, for an eye salve and an ear salve. And so this was very well known. This, of course, is where you get the background for the latter part of verse 18, where the Lord says to the church, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So he's drawing on culturally relative uh, circumstances to illustrate the uh, application of doctrine in the life of this particular congregation. I also noted last time that the gospel came here probably through Epaphras, who's mentioned in Colossians 1.7. He is the one that Paul dispatched from Ephesus. There was a two-year period when Paul was in Ephesus when he rented space in the school of Tyrannus, and there he had a training school. And part of that training was not just the academics of teaching Old Testament and New Testament, making sure they understood the gospel, but also sending these men out to plant churches, to witness, to take the gospel to all of the various uh, cities in Asia Minor. As I pointed out last time when Paul began his second missionary journey, he revisited those churches he had initially established at uh, Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And when he headed to the northwest to go into the Roman province of Asia, the Holy Spirit prevented him. And which shows that God doesn't always want you to witness to people just because you have the opportunity. Sometimes you need to lay a foundation or framework first before you get into giving them the gospel. So the Holy Spirit prevented him and took him instead up to Troas across into Europe. He went through Greece and planted churches in Greece. Then two years later when he returned... To Asia, he established a training center in Ephesus, and it was from that training center that he sent out men throughout Asia, and uh, dozens and dozens of churches were established, congregations were founded as a result of that. So the Holy Spirit has his own way of doing things. Now, these slides that I ran through, let me back up to the beginning of them, are important for understanding a basic uh, illusion in this Evaluation. He talks about the fact that that they're, he wishes that they were either hot or cold, but because they're neither hot nor cold, he's going to uh, vomit them out of his mouth because they're uh, they're lukewarm. And this is built off of a reality in the area 
that there were not enough local springs to provide water for the population in Laodicea, so they had to pipe their water in. And so we have archaeological remains of the various aqueducts that were built by the Romans especially. They were tremendous builders and engineers, and it's just incredible to look at all the things that they constructed over the centuries. And so here we have some of the remains of these large, are these aqueducts where they piped water in from Heropolis in the north and uh, Colossae to the southeast. Now, these are some pipes that show the calcium deposits from the years of water running through them. They had uh, indoor plumbing. And we don't, we think of that as a modern invention, but they had or they tried to have hot and cold running water. They brought the cold water in from Colossae, and this is a picture of the cold streams of water running in Colossae, and then they brought in hot water from the hot springs, the mineral springs in Heropolis. The problem is that when you move water some six miles uh, through the pipes, it would either cool down, it wouldn't be quite as hot, or it would get warmer and it wouldn't be quite is cold, and so there was a problem with the water in Laodicea, and they were known for that. It just wasn't very tasty. And if they had had bottled water in those days, I'm sure there would have been a great market for bottled water in Laodicea. But this was also important because they were so dependent upon bringing water in from these other towns that they were they were forced politically to always remain neutral. They could never be in a position of having to withstand a siege because it would be too easy to just cut off the water supply and they would be defeated. So they always remained neutral. And that probably was part of the reason why they also became a major financial and banking center because they weren't going to be uh, subject to the ebb and flow of political uh, powers. They would maintain a position of neutrality, not unlike Switzerland in modern history. So that's our background. Now we get back to our verse and look at the details of this. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning and the creation of the beginning of the creation of God. Now as I've noted before, when we have these evaluations, we always begin with a commission. The, there is an opening address to the angel of one of these churches, Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, uh, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, and now uh, Laodicea. There is a character reference, a citation of specific attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of these go back to that vision of the Lord Jesus Christ which Paul, I mean which John had on the Isle of Patmos. And that's what this is. It is introducing the author of this evaluation report and the character qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ that are emphasized at the beginning of each of these evaluation reports are particularly relevant to the problems or the successes of the congregation in that location. So we have three attributes that are emphasized according to these uh, three titles. He is first of all called the Amen. This is based on the Greek word Ha-Amen, which comes from a Hebrew word Amen. And so it is a 
title brought over into the New Testament that has its roots in the Old Testament. This particular title emphasizes the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, we've seen in in recent years, specifically with the popularity of the book, uh, The Da Vinci Code, the claim that Jesus wasn't God, he was just a man, he was a good teacher, uh, and many other claims that are are being popularized today. And if you go down to the local bookstore, you will note that the Da Vinci Code has just spawned a cottage industry of books like this that continue to make these claims. And then, of course, there's a number of solid Christian books that have been written uh, to counter that, to demonstrate that the claim that Jesus was God was not something that was invented in the uh, late 2nd or 3rd century A.D., but it not only was clearly taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself during the time of his incarnation, during his three years of ministry, in Israel, but also the New Testament clearly affirms it again and again and again, but that if you go back into the Old Testament, the Old Testament clearly teaches that the Messiah, the promised Messiah who would come, would be uh, fully divine. In fact, the name that the Old Testament prophesies would be would be a title attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ or to the Messiah was the name Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. So it's very clear that from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament that Jesus Christ was fully God, and as Messiah he was expected to be fully God. And this title, the Amen, emphasizes his deity. Usually this noun was used as an affirmation, sort of like, let it be so. People do that today. You go to uh, a lot of churches and you say something, everybody likes it, agrees with it, they'll say, amen. Some churches will say that more than other churches. And it's just an affirmation that I agree with that, let it be so. Sometimes it's the word was used in the New Testament as an adverb, uh, truly or verily, whenever you read in the gospel accounts when the Lord says, truly, truly, I say unto you, or verily, verily, I say unto you, that is a translation of this noun, amen. The use of the article with the noun here is unusual. This is the only place that you have this phrase used this way as a title or as a personal name for the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere else it's either the statement of an affirmation or it's a, uh, used as an adverb. So where do we get this title, this application of this title to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, as I've pointed out many times, you have to understand this in the context of the Old Testament. So much of what we have in the New Testament is grounded in Old Testament theology. One of the things I emphasize to my students at at, uh, College of Biblical Studies is that you can't really know who Jesus is or understand what the New Testament is saying about Jesus if you don't have that Old Testament frame of reference. You, You may understand it at a superficial level, but once you start getting into the Old Testament background, it just opens so many uh, things up for you. In Isaiah 65:16, we have uh, the use of the Hebrew word amen, and it is usually translated truth. But this noun, it's interesting, the noun of amen in the Old Testament is 
it's only translated truth in this one verse in Isaiah 65:16, and it should not be so translated. Let me read the verse to you. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Actually, some translations do continue to render this the the uh, shall bless himself in the God of the Amen. That's a literal translation. And as I just pointed out, everywhere else that you find uh, this word, this form of the word in the Hebrew text, it's always translated as Amen. Now, the reason they translate truth is because there is a correlation or relationship between the Hebrew word for truth and the Hebrew word for steadfastness and faithfulness, they're all various forms of the same basic root. As I pointed out to you many times, Hebrew is a language and the words are, are basically rooted in, in three-letter words. So the letter here, the first letter is actually transliterated like an apostrophe. It's the Hebrew consonant Aleph, which is more of a guttural stop, not really an uh, it's not a vowel. And you have Aleph, Mame, Noon. And that Aleph, Mame, Noon combination can in some forms indicate uh, stability, which is when you say, uh, for example, in affirmation of the New Testament, so be it. You're, you're reflecting the stability, the eternal truthfulness of a statement. And so stability and faithfulness is one dimension of this. And then in other forms of the word, it emphasizes uh, truthfulness, and there is a correlation here between truth and faithfulness, that, and stability. That there is a, some, there are certain things that are always true, and you can always count on them. And this is grounded, as we would say, as believers in the person of God, that He is the foundation of all truth. We get an idea of what this, where this word comes from. When we look at its usage in a somewhat obscure passage in 2 Corinthians 18:16, this, ha- this t- takes place at the time of Hezekiah when the Assyrians are threatening uh, Jerusalem, and they are they have already defeated the northern kingdom of, of Israel, and now they are attacking the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Hezekiah is going to buy them off with a ransom. And so he strips the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars uh, which, the king, which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid. And he gave it to the king of Assyria. But for our purposes here, the only thing we want to note is the word that's translated pillars here is really the foundation stone for the, the massive doors in, the, in Solomon's temple. And so they, they put these huge foundation stones uh, down in order to give stability to this enormous gate that was set on top of them. And so this word for, it's translated pillar or foundation stone, is this word amen. It indicates that which is stable, that which provides uh, stability and strength. When we were in Israel this summer, one of the things that was quite fascinating was to go down about 30 or 40 feet below what is now ground level and we looked at the foundation 
some of the foundation stones for the temple itself, not the foundation stones of these gates, but just some of the foundation stones. And most people think that the largest rocks that are moved around are those that are in the uh, Great Pyramid in Egypt. And the largest stone in the Great Pyramid of Egypt weighs about 30 tons. But the largest foundation stone that they know of underneath the Temple Mount weighed something like 600, or no, 536 tons. You want to move that? I mean, 536 tons, that's 500 tons more than the largest stone in uh, the Great Pyramid. So there were other stones that we saw that were just enormous. They'd be as wide as, as almost a whole row of chairs here, and then it would be about three foot in depth, and then who knows how far back it would extend. So that's what we're talking about here. This gives us the basic idea that when you talk about truth, when you talk about the faithfulness or the dependability of God, this is the, pardon the pun, rock-solid image that you should have in your mind. Hebrew is a very picturesque language, and so uh, that's where this concept came from, that if you're talking about God's dependability and faithfulness, what should come to your mind as a visual image are these foundation stones. And so this then comes to uh, indicate a certain character of of God. Isaiah 25.1, we find the same word here. You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness, and truth. And see, the word for faithfulness is aman, and the word for truth, listen, hear the difference, is amuna. Aman and amuna. And amuna is the, the form of the word that indicates uh, truth. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, uh, emphasizes this attribute of God. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is dependable. He will always do the same thing. When he makes a promise, he doesn't back off of that promise. There is security in anything that God says. Everything around us may change. Cultures may change. Empires may change. Political uh, parties in power may change. Uh, economics may change. Uh, the weather may change. Everything may change. But God will never, ever change. Lamentations three nineteen through 22 is perhaps the, the verse that should always come to our mind when we think of faithfulness. This is the lamentation of Jeremiah when the northern, or excuse me, when the southern kingdom of Israel is finally defeated by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. This is uh, the funeral dirge, as it were, the lament of Jeremiah over the the destruction of Jerusalem and the defeat of the Jews, and even in the midst of this horrendous military crisis where their country has been overrun by foreign invaders. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. Jeremiah focuses on the character of God. He says, Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. This pictures the bitterness 
of their military defeat. And, of course, Jeremiah is going to be uh, removed from the land and go down to Egypt with a, a remnant of Jews. He says, My soul still remembers and sinks within me. When I think about what happened, it just just the bottom falls out of my stomach. There's just this pain in the midst of my stomach. See, too often as believers we think that, well, when we're... When we're we go through these tough times in life. We ought to just say, uh, I need to have a stiff upper lip and trust God and, and, and not uh, experience the impact. And if I feel sad or depressed or discouraged, that somehow that's not trusting God. And yet again and again, when you read through the Psalms, you read through Lamentations, there is this reality that this hurts. It's real. There is significant sorrow and sadness, but... In the midst of this, I have a focus that gives me stability. This I recall to mind, and therefore, he draws a conclusion, I have hope. It's based, the hope is based on what he thinks. Now, hope in the Bible always refers to a future expectation. It is not some sort of uncertain optimism. That's how we often use the word. We have plans for Sunday afternoon, and we... Uh, get up in the morning and it's cloudy and we hope it won't rain because we want to work out in the yard. So we're not sure what will happen. So hope has this sort of wishy-washy connotation in English, but in Hebrew and Greek it had to do with a confident certainty, a future expectation. This I recall to mind, therefore I have confidence, I have hope, I have stability. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not they are new every morning great is thy faithfulness and of course that's what the hymn is based on is the hymn writer's meditation upon lamentations 3 22 and 23 that's what makes some of these hymns that we sing so great is they are uh, meditations of mature believers upon the realities of the truths of Scripture. They are extremely doctrinal in their focus. Then we come into the New Testament, and we see that the same attributes that are applied to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament, are applied to Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. And Jesus himself makes this claim. He says in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Each of these nouns has the article with it indicating specificity. Jesus is making an incredible claim here. He is the only way to God. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. Now, we live in a world today when everybody wants to think that there are many ways to God, and, and the very truth of, this, of Christianity proclaims an exclusivity, and this is something that, that many people in the world around us just can't handle. How can you be so arrogant as to think you know the only way to God? Uh, I've heard this at least five times in the last three months. Somebody comment that, that the, these Christians just think that they're, that they're the only ones who have the truth. How can they say that? How can they make these claims that they're the only ones who have the truth and that everyone else is wrong and that, that they're the only ones who know how to get to heaven and everybody else is going to go to the lake of fire? How absurd! 
these arrogant Christians. Well, they just don't understand Christianity, and they're trying to isolate and insulate themselves from the justice of God. Jesus is either telling the truth here, or he's not. If he's telling the truth, then he is the only way to God, and he is the ultimate source of truth. But if he's lying, if he's not telling the truth, then he's a liar. Very few people want to say that Jesus was a liar or a con artist. So he claims that he is the way, the only way to God, and secondly, that he is the truth. God defines truth. Truth isn't something that exists abstractly outside of the Godhead. Truth is determined by the very thinking of God. He is truth. He is not consistent with truth as some external thing, but he is truth. And that gives him stability. And we see in Hebrews 13.8 that that stability is present in Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can always count on him no matter what surprises us or shocks us in life. Jesus Christ remains the same. So the first title emphasizes stability. And at Laodicea, there would be times of instability. They were putting their emphasis on their own personal wealth and their own personal success, according to verse uh, 17. But this would not last forever because there is coming a future judgment, and that's the end of the evaluation. The next thing that is attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ is the phrase, the uh, faithful uh, and true witness. The faithful and true uh, witness. Uh, and the emphasis here is on is on witness. If you look at verse 14, he is the faithful and true witness. Faithful and true are adjectives modifying the noun witness. Now, he is a witness in his humanity. I pointed out that the title, the Amen, emphasizes his deity. The title, the Witness, emphasizes his humanity. Because that was his, one of his uh, objectives in the incarnation was to provide a witness to who God the Father is. Jesus said, no man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed him. And the word there is uh, the uh, Greek word from which we get our word exegesis, exegao. So he is the one who explicates and reveals who God the Father is. And so there's two uh, adjectives that modify that noun. He is the uh, He is not just the witness, he is the faithful and true witness. And so we move from the concept of amen, which brings in both of those ideas, and then John further develops it by saying that those two attributes of faithfulness and truth both apply to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both uh, faithful and true. We first see this title applied to Jesus Christ back in Revelation 1, 5. There we read from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his, or by means of his own blood. So back in Revelation 1, 5, we have the same idea. So when we read this at the beginning of of this evaluation report in 3.14, it is an allusion back 
to what was said in Revelation 1.6. Faithful witness refers to the fact that his life and ministry during the first advent were related to demonstrating the veracity of God the Father and being a witness to his grace and truth within the angelic conflict. The term witness always emphasizes a legal concept. It is not just that he is someone who observed something, but that he is bearing witness or giving a testimony within a legal context. He's giving evidence as to who the Father is and what the Father's character is. The term martus here, which is the noun form uh, in the Greek for witness, is used three times in Revelation, in 1.5, 2.13, and in 3.14. In 2.13, it referred to a man named Antipas, whose life was such a testimony that he was arrested and killed for his witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of uh, that and many thousands of others who were executed because of their testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, the noun martus came over into English as martyr. And that's where we get our word martyr, someone who gives his life for the truth, someone who is being a witness to who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And so he is not just a witness, he is the faithful and true witness and John 8:18 8, he says I am the one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me so he recognizes that what he is doing plays a legal function within the overall purposes of God now all of this goes back to the character of God we've studied this many times these 10 attributes that summarize the character of God that he is sovereign he is the ruler of the universe he is Righteousness. He is the absolute standard of the universe. His righteousness is the standard of all that he does. Justice is the outworking of that standard or the application of that standard to his creatures. Love is his desire to do that which is always the highest and best for his creatures. He is eternal life. He has no beginning and no ending. He has uh, three qualities that we refer to with that uh, prefix omni. He is omniscient, which means he knows all things. He knows all contingencies as well as all uh, things that will take place. He is omnipresent, which means that he is uh, present, always present to his creation. He is omnipotent. He has all power. He is able to accomplish that which he intends to accomplish. And he is veracity, which means he is absolute truth. And immutability, which means he is absolutely unchangeable, so he is dependable. Those last two attributes relate to what we just said. He is the faithful one and the true one. Now, we take some of these attributes, righteousness, justice, and love, and we combine them because along with his veracity or truth, these relate to his integrity. Integrity is a word that focuses on certainty and dependability. If someone has integrity, they're a person who's, who you can count on, someone who is dependable, someone who speaks the truth. And so the foundation for God's integrity and for Christ's integrity is his righteousness, 
the standard for his character, his justice, its application, his love toward his creatures, that he always desires their best, but that must function within the context of his righteousness and his justice and his truth. And the psalmist said that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, and love and truth go forth from it. So the psalmist recognizes that these four attributes form the foundation for his integrity. Now we know from our study of Scripture that Satan challenged God in the uh, time before creation, that in eternity past at some point, when, after God had created the angels, the highest of all the angels was Lucifer. And Lucifer was the smartest, most brilliant, the most capable of all the angels. And after a while, he decided he wanted to be worshipped just as God did, and he wanted to run the creation in God's place. So he challenges God. He challenges God's sovereignty, that is, his right to rule. This showed a lack of humility on Satan's part. He challenged God's integrity, the standard of his rule. So you're not, you're not really fair to your creatures. You need to give us an opportunity to show that we can do it as well. So you lack righteousness was his claim. He challenged the application of God's standard, his justice. How can a uh, just God send his creatures to the lake of fire without giving us an opportunity? He challenged God's love. How can a loving God send his creatures to spend eternity in the lake of a fire. So the result of all that is that God in his grace and according to his own purposes decided to create sort of a test case, a demonstration as it were of his grace and his love and that no creature could ever run creation on his own. So he created uh, the human race and he restored the planet and he puts man on planet earth and man is going to demonstrate down through all the periods of human history all the different permutations and possibilities of human autonomy or creaturely autonomy. And so at different stages in human history, we see that God has different amounts of revelation. He gives man different amounts of aid. And throughout it all, we will always and consistently discover that the creature just can't make it work apart from the Creator. And so we have to depend upon the Creator. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing. He is showing in his life that apart from 100% dependence upon the Father for everything in life as a creature, there is no stability, there is no happiness. You cannot fulfill your meaning, purpose, your objective in life apart from that. So Jesus Christ, in hypostatic union as the, as the God-man, demonstrates in his humanity what it means to walk in dependence upon the Lord. So in that he is a witness and he demonstrates these truths and for that he is sent to the cross and he dies on the cross for us. Now, Jesus is called the faithful or dependable witness. The word for faithful is the Greek noun pistos, which describes his character. He is Faithful to God. He never violates God's plan or purposes. He, this is how we usually describe the hypostatic union, is that Jesus Christ restricted the independent use of his divine attributes and never exercised them independently of the Father's plan. He would never 
the second person of the Trinity never operated independently of the Father anyway, but he always does and carries out the Father's plan. He is without sin. He's impeccable. Uh, this qualifies him to go to the cross. Now, when we bring together these, these attributes of immutability and deity, this terminology takes us back to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. And where God promised to David in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, 14 and following, that uh, his seed would sit on an eternal throne, that he would have an eternal dynasty. And so Psalm 89 is a meditation on that. In verse 36 we read, His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. Verse 37, It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. See, it's connecting the seed, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, to this faithful witness. So when we come over to Revelation 3 and we read the Amen, we see that 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 terminology has a root in the Old Testament as being a title applied to God, and it's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, indicating His deity. And then the title Faithful Witness comes out of Psalm 89.37 and is and, and brings into focus the entire Davidic covenant and the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who will rule forever upon the throne of David. So we learn about Jesus that he is a faithful witness in that he faithfully uh, demonstrates and reveals the attributes of God. We look at the Lord Jesus Christ and we can learn about God. He is the one who reveals him. Second, we see that as a faithful witness, this indicates his role in the incarnation, that he was to be a witness, a legal witness within a courtroom type of setting, which would relate to Satan's challenge of God. And so God is giving him an opportunity to challenge him, and God, as it were, like in a courtroom, is calling forth witnesses that will demonstrate uh, the truth that only God can rule his creation. Jesus Christ was also faithful in his revelation of the uh, salvation. He are in carrying out the mission of salvation. He is faithful in the mission of salvation so that he goes to the cross and fulfills God's plan of salvation in dying for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins. He's faithful in his mission to set the precedence for the spiritual life. See, Jesus Christ is tempted in all areas as we are, yet without sin. And what we learn in our study in Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 3 is that Jesus Christ handles the temptation in his humanity by relying upon uh, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He doesn't rely on his deity. That'd be no test at all. So he has to go through those tests in his humanity without relying on his humanity, I mean on his deity at all, and he is faithful in doing that. And then he is also faithful in his teaching. So he is the faithful and true witness. And then the last phrase, he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now this phrase was misunderstood back in the 4th century by the group that was known as the Arians. The Arians were the followers of Arius, A-R-I-U-S, and Arius taught that there was a time when Christ was not. In other words, he be, he's a creature. 
His beginning was before the foundation of the earth, but he was created sometime in eternity past. He had a beginning, and so they would go to this passage, but it's a misunderstanding of what is meant by the beginning. The Greek word here is the word arche, A-R-C-H-E, arche, and arche has the idea of preeminence, preeminence. He is not the first in time. He is the first in order. In other passages, he's called the beginning and the end. That means he is the one from whom we come and to whom we go. He is. It's all about Jesus Christ, in other words. He is the arche. He is the uh, first and foremost one in all of creation. This is indicated in such passages as well as Colossians 1, 18 and 19. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, not having a beginning, but he is the first, the preeminent one, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Uh, Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is to be full deity. He has to be eternal. Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, that is the preeminent one, over all creation. This is clearly stated in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the imperfect uh, of a me there, indicating he continually existed as uh, the Word, and the Word continually existed with God, and the Word continually existed and was God. So it indicates full deity from the very beginning. So the emphasis on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of this evaluation report is on his deity, on his humanity, and on the fact that he is the beginning and the end of all things. Everything goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Since he is the focus of everything in our life, then there is no basis for becoming a lukewarm Christian, which is what happened to the church in Laodicea, they became lukewarm. They became uh, tepid in their Christianity. They had the outer form of godliness, but they denied the power of it. So next time we'll look at the doctrine of the lukewarm believer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to focus on your character, who you are, what you have provided for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to be reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity and that he left his place in heaven to take on humanity in order to live his life among sinners for 30 plus years and to go to the cross and there to bear our sins in his body on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you have the opportunity to have eternal life. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Father, we pray that you would give us an uplifted vision of who you are and who our Lord Jesus Christ is as a result of what we study today, and that we, it may move us to greater obedience and greater discipline in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.